Good afternoon, everybody. That was amazing. Let's give them another hand. Come on. Come on. Pastor Karen, Pastor Karen, you and your team just were amazing this week. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. Really, truly. It was so phenomenal. It was so good. Next year, when, when VBS rule comes around, um, come and check it out because it is mayhem in the best controlled way possible. Now, if you're going to come and hang out and you don't have a kid, just don't be creepy about it, all right? Because we're going to have to deal with you if you are. But we love you to see it. It's just incredible. 150 kids, 100 volunteers. That's amazing. And so, man, just thank you, Karen. Thank you so much. All right. Um, Need to make sure I'm ready to go. Uh, we're in week eight of the Christophany series. That means we've done eight weeks in the Old Testament talking about how God reveals himself, how he manifests himself into the world. And um, so, so we're going to talk more about that. And we're going to spend two weeks talking about prophets, which is what we're talking about today. But before we get into that, we just want to thank you, those of you who are fathers or father figures, um, for the incredible work that you do in helping um, create people of value and wonderful citizens and, and Christians who are falling in love with Jesus Christ because of the way that you've raised your children or, you know, whoever it is that you're responsible for who is under your influence. So thank you for that. We just want to let, let you know how appreciative we are. The world needs more great fathers and father figures. So thank you for that. We celebrate you this weekend, as well as, um, as you know, it's a national holiday, Juneteenth, where we where we remember back to the um, Emancipation Proclamation to where we, um, we began to correct the national shame that we have, which is um, obviously slavery. And that plays interestingly into this particular sermon and talk today, and it was really kind of a sacred echo that it would fall on today, and we'll get to that in a moment. But um, before we get to that, we need to talk about a few of the ways that God has manifested himself in the Old Testament that we've seen, right? The first and foremost one is this idea of physical manifestation, right? When God shows up in the flesh, and as you know, when we hear that term, the angel of the Lord, it is oftentimes, if not all the time, an apositional statement, meaning um, the angel that is the Lord, right? So it's not an angel of the Lord. It is actually the Lord in whatever manifestation that is, but it's a physical manifestation that we're talking about. That's one of the ways that he shows up. Remember, like saying the, the Euphrates River, we say the river Euphrates, that's an apositional statement. So you basically flip the things around. So we know that God has shown up in physical manifestations, right? Right? We also know that God has shown up in pretty dramatic manifestations. The, the burning bush is pretty, pretty dramatic, right? Um, when he shows up with a sword, a flaming sword, that's pretty dramatic. Working through a talking donkey, again, pretty dramatic for sure. And then, of course, you've got visions and dreams, something like Jacob's ladder, if you remember from the Old Testament. Um, we've got Jacob's ladder or some of the Gideon conversations that Gideon was having. Um, they could be, we could categorize those in visions and dreams. But there's one way that God has manifested himself in the Old Testament that we haven't really talked about yet. And so we're going to spend two weeks on it. And this is 
when he manifests himself through the words of the prophet. And this begs more time. So we're going to spend this week and we're going to spend next week talking about the prophets. Today we're going to kind of get to know the prophets a little bit, wondering like who they were. Because these prophets, these words that we get from the prophets, we're often harsh, we're often corrective, we're often, often pretty dramatic in themselves. And we have to know what to do with that. And by the way, when we talk about prophets in the Old Testament, you know we're not just talking about men. There's five women that are mentioned in the Old Testament, and they're worth mentioning now. We've got Miriam in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 20. We've got Deborah, who shows up in Judges 4, verse 4. We have Huldah, who's in 2 Kings 22, 4. We've got Noadiah, who shows up in Nehemiah 6, 14. And we've got one woman who's called the prophetess in Isaiah 8, verse 3. So it wasn't just male prophets. God used women, and certainly God has been continuing to use women to give his message throughout eternity and throughout all time, certainly to today. And so we're blessed to have women who are in leadership roles and who are giving us the message of God as well. So even though we talk about the prophets in the Old Testament being mostly men, they were women as well. But let's spend a little bit of time talking about what prophets were like, because we encounter lots of different prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, a lot of these, you know, Malachi, a lot of these people, and we don't really know what they were like and what the common theme was in between them. But there's one common theme that they all had, and it begins here. They all had a sensitivity to evil across the board. Each prophet had a strong sense of evil and its implications. So where evil would go, Right? Have you ever been watching a movie with someone who's probably just a little bit smarter than you and they figure out in the first five minutes who did it? And then they tell you it's the worst, right? I live with a wife who is much smarter than me, as you all well know. And this happens often. She's like, mm, that guy did it. I'm like, what are, we, what are we supposed to do now? Just spend another hour and a half watching this thing? Yes, we do, because she needs to be affirmed in her correctness. And I 100% believe in that. But... Um, Prophets were like that, right? Prophets were like, I can see where this is going and it's not a good place. They seem to have this uncanny ability to see where things are headed, right? But they, when they tell people about it, they don't show us by having a tendency to reach like to the highest philosophical plane. Rather, and Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book, The Prophets says this, instead of showing us a way through the elegant mansions of the mind, the prophet takes us into the slums. The prophet shows us what it's going to be like if we don't change our behavior, if we don't change our conduct, right? This is, and we've, I quote Abraham Heschel a lot, and I'll just own that because I love his work. Um, he wrote this book, The Sabbath, which is just amazing and phenomenal. And whenever I speak on the Sabbath, I quote him. However, this is, his work on the prophets is really seminal. It's really important. And so if you ever want a book on the prophets, it's called, it's really easy to remember, The Prophets. So you can get that, right? This was his doctoral work, so it's a, little bit, it's a little bit denser, I would say, than his book on the Sabbath. But sensitivity to evil is really high on the list, right? The things that were evil and horrified the prophets, by the way, are now pretty much daily occurrences all over the world. There's no society to which Amos's words would not apply. Amos 8.4, listen to this. You who robbed the poor and trampled down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end. So you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and you cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. And you mix grain you sell with chaff 
swept from the floor. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or one pair of sandals. Now, this is antiquated language, obviously. I don't think any of you are going to cheat anybody for a pair of sandals. I mean, I don't know. Birkenstocks are expensive, but by and large, I don't think you're going to, right? But I think you get the gist, right? This is clearly, by the way, a rebuke of Israel, the religious people, even what might seem like a small issue, like cheating in business. For a prophet, it brings ire and frustration because a prophet is somebody who feels things really fiercely, right? And if you have kids, you know that you have kids that feel things different, like intensities, right? You've got that one kid that has like a white hot intensity. So if you give them the wrong cup when they're two years old, they freak out and like freak, freak out. And everybody in the family is like, what's wrong with this kid? There's nothing wrong with your child. They just feel things. They may be prophets. <laughs> Treat them right. right. They feel things really. Because for a prophet, there's no small misdeed. Right? God kind of thrust a burden upon their souls. And, and quite honestly, they're stunned at man's fierce greed and selfishness. They are just shocked that people would be this way. And prophets are both luminous and explosive. What I mean by that is a prophet speaks to the overwhelming love of God one moment and then explosively demands retribution for the sins of their audience in the next moment. Both things are true, the love, the anger, the bliss, and the agony. They live in this world and they're more than willing to say it. And this is why in the Old Testament prophets, you will hear him, you will hear a prophet speaking so powerfully of the love of God and so powerfully about the judgment of God as well. And it'll happen in just moments. The truth is, reading the words of the prophets is a strain on the emotions, wrenching one's conscience from, one, from the state of suspended animation, right? In fact, Isaiah says it this way in chapter 49, verse two, the mouth of the prophet is a sharp sword, right? It's not a blunt instrument, it cuts. It's supposed to be difficult reading this writing. Right? It's not easy reading. It's supposed to capture the imagination. It's supposed to introduce fear and wrath and love and compassion all at once. In fact, I love what Abraham Heschel says again when he says a prophet's images must not shine. They must burn. This is to jolt us out of our complacency. We need to be shocked into awe. This was true then, and perhaps it's even more true now. Everything in this world seems manufactured to put us to sleep, whether it's entertaining us or whether it's boring us to death. Everything is trying to put us to sleep, to not feel, to anesthetize. Um, my wife and I have an artist that we used to listen to a lot. His name's David Wilcox, and we had seen him in lots of different venues kind of all throughout the United States. And... Um, and we, this particular time, we were going to go see him at the Belly Up in Carlsbad. I think it's in Carlsbad or Encinitas, right around there. And um, that, that's a bar, right, and with a big stage and everything. It's a venue, but it has a bar in it. A lot of the places he plays doesn't have bars. And we'd never seen him at a place that served alcohol. So we were there sitting watching. And you could tell, like, he's playing up front, and there's a whole bunch of stuff happening at the bar in the back. And there was, it seemed like there was almost this struggle to maintain people's attention and to bring them in. And he writes music. The stuff he says will just make you weep. It's just amazing. Um, and so by the third song, you can tell he's really struggling. And he said, hey, I got to tell you, he said, I'm here to make you feel 
to make you empathize, to make you, you know, to get into in, inside and harass your souls. He said, and, and tonight's venue is built in a different way because that alcohol that they're selling, it's meant to anesthetize you so you don't feel. And he said, that's okay. I don't know that, I, that he's necessarily against alcohol. He said, he said but, but I want you, if you're here to hear me, I want you to spend this night feeling and empathizing. So this is what I'm going to do. He said, anybody who wants to can come up and sit up here on the stage. It was quite a big stage. And lo and behold, 50, 60, 70 people came and just sat at his feet around the stage. And it changed the whole tenor of the night because all of a sudden we were right there with him. And he took the focus away from the anesthetization and brought it into the feeling. This is what prophets do. Their images must not shine. They must burn. And by the way, the prophets always thought of the highest good. And for them, the highest good was God. Not what the ancients valued, right? Not wisdom, not wealth, not power. The prophet could see that for the facade that it really is. Ancient cities and empires boasted of their power, but prophets saw the power of God as an eclipse of the wealth and the mighty men. Right? It says it really clearly in Jeremiah 8, 9. These wise teachers will fall into the trap of their own foolishness, for they have rejected the word of the Lord. Are they so wise after all? Even wisdom, so much valued by the surrounding culture, Greek and Roman cultures, was assumed as an artifice, as nothing real. Jeremiah calls it out. And when it was in Israel, they called it out even more powerfully, perhaps the most profoundly called out in the book of Zechariah. There he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Always bringing it back to God, always bringing it back to his power, his might, his glory, and God's wisdom. But prophets always spoke one octave too high. You know that guy, right? You know that woman, the one who gets really upset, starts to like ramp up and their voice gets higher and higher. And you're like, what's going on? What's the problem? I'm kind of like that. I'm not going to lie. You know, you sit and listen to me. When I start speaking, I start getting all raspy and high and get all like, you know, Twitter pated. This is what prophets always were like. They always seem to be in like in a fit of rage and a tizzy. It's exhausting. Right? We and, the, we and the prophets don't really have a language in common because what is okay with us is abhorrent to the prophet. The prophet is walking around his life or her life saying, how are you okay with this? How are you okay with this injustice? How are you okay with this suffering? How are you okay with there not being mercy involved in this transaction? How is it that you can be okay with this? We... We become okay with things and a prophet can't because the prophet was an iconoclast. And that means the prophet was different. When they made the prophet, they would break the mold. If you're not sure about this, read the book of Hosea. That dude was crazy, but he was crazy for a reason, challenging the holy and revered and awesome institutions of the day, beliefs and institutions of thought that people thought were holy became their target. They would expose the scandalous, the pretentious, the arrogant, and they would do that for people of faith as well. You know what I'm about to do? I have to get on a plane tomorrow morning and go to Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm speaking at the National Pastors Convention for Seventh-day Adventist pastors. There's 6,000 pastors there. Let me tell you what I'm deeply afraid of. I'm deeply afraid of a prophetic word from God. 
I do not want to be Hosea on Monday night. Because you know how that's going to go. I'm going to say some stuff and people are going to get mad. And they're going to get mad because it's true. Or they can't admit that it's true. Right? And this is the problem with prophets. Because the prophets make sweeping allegations. Which doesn't seem fair, right? Because the prophet paints with a big brush. Let's take a look at Hosea. He says, listen, hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. You make vows and you break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. Now listen, that can't be true. It can't be true that everyone was killing everybody. There wouldn't be anybody left. Just do the math on that. Clearly, not everyone was killing everyone. However, for a prophet, few are, go- few are guilty, but all are responsible. I talked about Juneteenth. In America, we have a massive scar because we were involved in the slave trade. And we let it go on for too long. And in healing those wounds, we've let the- that pain go on for too long as well. None of us here were slavers but we're all responsible for the healing that takes place from that. We have to be. We have to be if we believe in justice and we believe in mercy and we believe in compassion and we believe in all these things that we say we believe in. We have to be part of the healing process from that horrible, horrible thing that was part of our country's history. We have to acknowledge it. We have to help repair it. And hopefully we move on remembering, not move on forgetting. And that's why I'm glad this is a national holiday and we take the moment to do this. It's important because for prophets, even though not everybody was causing the problem, if we allowed for the problem, we're part of the problem. And so they would paint in these massive brushes saying that we are all responsible to see the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So every accusation from a prophet is national and even human. And it comes down like a blast from heaven Right? And this is, this is a problem with prophets. To a prophet, everyone else appears blind and deaf because God is right in front of them, speaking directly to them all the time. They can see too much, hear too much. The idea of isolation from God is a fairy tale, hence the urgency for the prophet. God's presence is not a comfort to a prophet. It is a challenge an incessant demand that God gives them to be compassion and not compromise, to be justice, not inclemency. The prophet's predictions now can be proven wrong by a change in conduct. But can you imagine living with those voices in your head all the time? Feeling that kind of, of discomfort at the suffering of other people? Not finding a place for it to fit nicely within our theology and go, well, that just happens sometimes. No, a prophet didn't get to sleep that way. I can imagine that being a prophet was exhausting. And by the way, nobody wanted to hang out with prophets. Nobody liked them. They'd go and see them. They'd go out into the desert and listen to them, but they didn't want to hang out with them. And what's funny is that the prophets actually knew it. Right? Amos says in Amos 5.10, how you hate honest judges. He's talking about himself. How you despise people who tell the truth. In Jeremiah, he goes on for paragraphs saying, I wish I hadn't been born like this. I wish I hadn't. I literally wish that I had not 
have this connection with God because you hate me and I hate me sometimes. Prophets hated their jobs, but they sensed God. They were able to bear scorn and reproach and even to be thought of as mad sometimes because they knew that they were doing what God wanted them to do. So I wonder, what would we do with a prophet today? Uh, and I'll tell you, we'd probably do much the same. We'd ignore them, right? We would marginalize them. We would do everything we can not to have to hear them. In fact, when a pastor speaks in a prophetic voice, which sometimes I think a pastor has to do, and by the way, I'm not talking about telling the future when I'm talking about the prophetic voice. I'm talking about a correction from a way a community is headed because you're able to see the outcome and it's not good. But I'll tell you what happens when a, pro, when a pastor speaks in a prophetic voice. Half the congregation gets upset. A few get up and leave, and a bunch of people threaten to leave. I'm not going to tell you how I know this. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> but I got to tell you, if you go to a church where you agree with every single thing that comes out of the pastor's mouth, chances are the pastor's not saying very much. This is not a popularity contest. We didn't get into this work so that we can make you feel good about where you are spiritually. We get into this work to study the word of God and we're blessed to be afforded that opportunity and to bring what God has placed on our hearts to you. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's hard for you to hear. And sometimes it's hard for us to say. But that's where trust becomes really important. Believing that even if I don't like the words that are coming from that pastor's mouth, I trust that person is doing the best that they can to listen to the word of God in their lives. And since they have that platform and God has afforded them that space, we should listen too. Don't even always have to agree, but have to listen because trust is involved. Right? Jeremiah says that the prophet's word is fire and people are wood and the fire shall devour them. It's not comfortable. But we need to ask one more question. Where is the Christophany in the prophet's words? And this is a fair question, right? Where is the manifestation of Jesus in the words of the prophets? And sometimes it's really hard to see, but I'll tell you this, anytime the prophet speaks of kingdom values, speaks of justice, speaks of mercy, speaks of hope, speaks of grace, speaks of equality, excuse me, and belonging, anytime they're speaking of this, they are in, in, Incarnating the values of the kingdom and therefore we are seeing a manifestation of God. Now, if you follow along in the series guide, this week we talked particularly about Isaiah chapter 40. So we're gonna spend a little time in those last few minutes that we have together speaking about Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 speaks directly to the second coming of, uh, to the coming of Christ. And so, um, so this one's a little bit easier than some of the other ones. But again, every time a prophet is speaking kingdom values, they are incarnating what God wants in the world. They're incarnating that kingdom. And so that's where we see the Christophany. In Isaiah 40, reading from the New Living Translation, it says this, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort. It says it twice because there's been a lot of tough prophecies, a lot of tough prophetic words, we should say. And now we're moving into a, a, another space. Now we're moving into where God wants to comfort Israel. And by the way, there's, there's different ideas on this idea of revelation and inspiration. And it's important for us to know the difference. There are some faith traditions that say everything that says God said is exactly the way God wanted it. God, God dictated it to the people. We call those God's pen. 
right? There's other faith traditions, ours being one of them, the Seventh-day Adventist faith tradition being one of them, that actually says, and I'm quoting from Ellen White here, it says, the, the writers of Scripture were God's penmen, not God's pen, right? So they were not taking direct dictation, although we have some of these words in the Old Testament prophetic language that seems like it might be dictation, and certainly it might well could be. But when we get to like the New Testament and the inspiration that we see around the stories of Jesus and that sort of thing, we, um, we believe that God partnered with people as he revealed himself to them and inspired them. So that's just something that you need to know when it comes to the idea of revelation and inspiration. So, Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And that's beautiful because prophets didn't always speak tenderly. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. So it's comfort to Jerusalem, but it's eschatological in nature. It seems like something is coming, right? We're moving towards the end of something or we see a change in something, right? And we are to remember where we came from her sins are pardoned, so there's a recognition of those sins. And the punishment, twice, for her sins. There's lament in this, but we're also seeing trajectory because her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her, but then it says, listen. And this is another voice, interestingly enough, that comes into the narrative. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make straight the highway, make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. John the Baptist quotes this, obviously, hence the ties directly to Jesus. Something is coming. The second voice says something is coming. Prepare. We've heard about preparation before, right? Moses circumcising his son. Joshua circumcising Israel. Even Paul, once the, once the scales are taken off his eyes, has to prepare to give the word of God. Prepare to do the calling that God has for them. So he's saying, prepare, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys. He's telling us how to do it now. And level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. This sounds like a great road to drive on. This is how you build a road. By the way, Babylonian roads at the time, by and large, went to temples. Roman roads later on essentially took people to Rome. But this is not a highway for people. You notice this is a highway for God to get to us. Make that way plain. Make that way smooth. Make that way easy for God. Because then the glory of God will be revealed and all the people will see it. Together, the Lord has spoken. This is not the history of God working. Rather, this is God himself appearing, manifesting in the flesh with us and for us. It is the prophetic word that God is here, the incarnation, the Emmanuel. And then a voice, another voice says, shout. And I love it that the prophet says, what, what should I say? He says, shout. And he says, I'm not sure what to say. And so he goes, okay, let me give you the words. And these words don't sound great, but stay with me. Shout the people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers and flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Now, it starts out pretty bad, but these are actually words of encouragement of what is about to happen. And what, what the prophet is recognizing is, don't put your trust in people because they go away. And if we took that further, don't put your trust in institutions because they will fade as well. What you are supposed to put your trust in is the word of God that stands forever. 
The word of God is Jesus. We see it in John chapter one, ha logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning, everything was created through him and for him. He's the first among all creation. You know this text. That's a direct connection to the prophetic word that was given in the book of Isaiah. By the way, we understand the book of Isaiah took quite a few hundred years to write. So there was not one Isaiah. It's an amalgamation of different prophetic voices over some generations, kind of during the intertestamental time. So it's, under, it's important that we understand this. But this language, right? The word of our God stands forever. It's talking about Jesus specifically. And it's talking about Jesus standing forever, not just showing up and then disappearing, but showing up and being there forever through his crucifixion and resurrection and his ascension. O Zion, he cries out, messenger of good news. Shout from the mountaintop. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Don't keep this for yourself. This word of encouragement, this word of hope, this word of Jesus coming is not something you're supposed to keep for yourself. Shout it and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah. Your God is coming. It's important that you understand and that you wait with anticipation and awe, with expectation that God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. He will bring, see, he brings his reward with him as he comes. So what's that reward? We like rewards. I think the reward is this. I think the reward is Jesus. He's the messenger and the message, right? He's the promise and he is the reward. Jesus is the reward, access, salvation, Jesus in short. And then they explain who Jesus is in a way that we all can understand because we've lived with these words from the New Testament for a long time. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. This is the sustaining and gracious God. We see the shepherding metaphors, obviously, in the New Testament as well through the words of Jesus, actually, as he calls himself the good shepherd. But prophets lead to the same conclusion, that God is good and that God is coming. That is both a sword and a comfort, you understand. Now, here's what's interesting. We were studying Old Testament prophets, right? And so sometimes we have a tendency to leave the Old Testament in the Old Testament, and that means prophets kind of wait in the Old Testament as well. In the New Testament, we have some different language for them, right? Apostles, perhaps, disciples, right? We don't use the word prophet so much from the New Testament on. In our faith tradition, we have a woman that we have called a prophet, and we have afforded her certain rights and certain, um, you know, nomenclatures that go along with that. But we really don't think about a lot of prophetic words coming to us anymore. But I would like to challenge you with this question. Who are the prophets around you? I'm talking about people who know you. I'm talking about people who speak wisdom into your life that is sometimes a prophetic word. Hey, if you go that direction, I'm really worried about what's gonna happen to you. Hey, I see that you're falling away from this relationship that you've had with God. Is there anything that I can do to help bring you back? These are prophetic words, you understand? Because that's what the Old Testament prophets were doing. Hey, it seems like you're really getting caught up in your career and you really love making this money that this new job has afforded you. Are you remembering justice? Are you remembering mercy? Are you remembering compassion? Is that still part of your life? Or are you so convinced that you have a trajectory with this career that that's all you can think about? Come back. These are prophetic words in our lives. So you need to sit and think, who are those that you trust that speak into your life with wisdom. And those words may be prophetic at times, right? You don't have to go around calling them prophet, uncle, whatever. But when you hear that prophetic word, 
I guess the, the second question, which is probably more important, is will you listen to them? Or do you already know? Have you figured it all out? Because if that's the case and we're not looking for prophetic words in our life, then all we're doing is coming to church, going to, you know, having friendships that are just there to affirm what we already know. And that's not, that's not the position a believer takes, just so you know. The position a believer takes is that God is still revealing himself. God still has things that he wants me to learn. God still has has wisdom to pour into my life. And it may be coming from lots of different vessels in my life. So we're gonna spend another week talking about prophets. We'll go a little more granular next week, talking about some specific prophets. But I want you to know this. I believe that God still speaks. You know, it's not always with a burning bush, although I think sometimes in our lives, bushes still do burn. We just have to recognize them. We don't listen to the people in our lives without the help of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand, to interpret, and to make sense. Sometimes of their intention, but also sometimes of their words. So we need to understand, we have not been left alone without a prophetic voice. It may be a little harder to find sometimes. It may not look the way it did in the Old Testament, but this God, this word that stands forever, that's the God we believe in. We believe he's alive. We believe he's still working on our behalf. We believe that he is still speaking and still using the Holy Spirit to inform us in the way that we should go. And that's prophetic in the way that we live our lives. So as we sing this final song, just think about those prophets around you and whether or not you're interested in listening to them or not. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the prophetic word. Whether it's in the Old Testament, New Testament, whether it's still coming to us today. Lord, may we be reasonable. May we think about it. May we test, like the test of the prophets that we have in the Old Testament, test those words that come to us. But while at the same time, may we, may be, may we believe that you are still speaking, still moving, still growing us, still teaching us to become not only better disciples and apostles of you, but also to make on earth as it is in heaven, and Lord, remind us that the prophetic word biblically never leads to more destruction. It always leads to more peace. And may we discern that in the prophetic words around us. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.